Nick Freitas, a former Green Beret, dedicated years of service to the U.S. Army and one year in the Washington National Guard in 19th Group following a remarkable tenure on active duty. After leaving the Army, he established his own business and attained a position in the Virginia House of Delegates, where he currently serves. In our conversations with Nick, we discuss his military experience, being a husband, having daughters, and his suggestions for a great reading list. Let's get after it. We have a professional obligation for the ethical application of, uh, of force. You can have a growth mindset where you're always achieving for better. This is about us, about our guard, our reputation. We are all in this together. Outthink, outmaneuver, and outfight the enemy. If you wage war, do it energetically and with severity. This is the only way to make it shorter and consequently less inhumane. Well, thanks for joining us again for another episode of the Raven Report podcast. I'm very excited uh, today to uh, introduce our guest. We have uh, Captain Ken Fifley from uh, BCO, one of the 161 Infantry, who also works on the... Oh, three of the 161. I don't even know our own battalion. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, Ken, thanks for uh, being here, man. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then uh, we also have uh, Nick from uh, Virginia. Nick, thanks for so much for joining us. I'm lo- really looking forward to our conversation. No, thanks for having me on. Yeah. So um, right before we got going, you're saying that you were in the uh, Washington National Guard, which is a complete like mine, you know, like, explosion <laughs> for us because we had no idea. So like, why don't you just tell us about your military career and how you ended up in the Evergreen State? Sure. So uh, my my first experience with the military is I actually joined the, uh, the California National Guard um, when I was in high school. So I, I think I joined like the day before my 18th birthday. Uh, and, and was there through high school, didn't get to drill a whole lot. In fact, uh, I did get accidentally called up. We had, we had floods, believe it or not, in California, which is not a typical <laughs> problem down there. But uh, I, I got called up at a high school, and since I was on the roster, they called me up. But I hadn't been through basic yet. I hadn't, you know, and again, I was a high schooler. So I was there for a week fighting floods before my platoon sergeant came in and said, yeah, dude, you're not supposed to be here. <laughs> um, but um, immediately went, um, so I, I was still on the delayed entry program. So I, I, I got to kind of train my guard unit, but then I never actually ended up really serving with them because I immediately went over to active duty. Uh, first unit was the 82nd Airborne. Um, I did my, my basic training at Fort Benning, uh, Georgia, uh, Sand Hill, good old home of the infantry. Right. And uh, 82nd Airborne, after 82nd Airborne, um, <clears throat> when I was there, I got, I got to go some you know great schools, great experiences, you know, air assault, sniper, and ranger, all that good stuff. And then uh, re- I thought I was actually going to get out at that point. This was um, 2000. Okay. And uh, I decided to re-enlist, and my, my wife wanted to go to Hawaii, so I re-enlisted to go to Hawaii and about uh, with 227 Wolfhounds. And um, about four months after we, we got to Hawaii, September 11th happened. Oh. And I remember looking at Tina then going, well, I, I know what I'm doing for the next decade. <laughs> <laughs> so right. uh, so I, uh, I went to Special Forces Selection, um, went to the Q course uh, at, at Bragg, and then uh, came back to uh, be with uh, ODA 193, later 1333, with 1st Special Forces Group at Fort Lewis, Washington. Oh, and um, did a couple of combat tours over in Iraq in 06 and 08. Um, when I got out in uh, June of 09, um, almost to the day of when I initially uh, enlisted, I did a year with uh, 19th Group based out of Washington, but I almost immediately got a job on the East Coast 
uh, doing defense contracting work. And so they, they were really great. They worked with me, but I only did a year of the guard because it was, it was just, it was too difficult to try to, you know, live in Virginia and, and train in the Washington guard. But I, I did appreciate how accommodating they were for uh, a guy newly out of the military trying to feed his uh, family. <laughs> right. Yeah. That, that, like we were saying, it's like a uniquely guard experience to like, you know, to, to like live in one place, but actually be assigned in a complete other. I, I do that myself. I actually live in East Texas, uh, but commute up oh. here uh, because hey, this is like very much my, my military home. So I understand what, uh, what, what that's like for you. Uh, so I guess like my, my question to you would be like, so like you're, you're in the California national guard and then they, they start calling you up as a high schooler. Did you even have any equipment or anything at the time? Oh, no, no, the only, <laughs> th- this is the, this is the crazy part. I think they thought I did because, you know, I was one of those kids that, I mean, I, I love the military. I always wanted to join the military. So I had my own BDUs. So I, I showed up in my own, showed up in my own BDUs, my own boots, but I didn't have like, I didn't have like my name tape or rank or like that. And, and so I remember getting chewed out one day about it. And like, I didn't know any better. Like, oh man, I guess I'm, I guess I'm all jacked up. Um, but, but yeah, it was, it was, yeah, like I said, a week into it. You know, call my hey mom. I got called off for the guard. I got to go. You know, fight floods down in you know, the Delta around Sacramento. But yeah, that was my platoon start was a little nervous. I, I think it was they, they kind of realized after the fact that it was a big problem that I, I had been uh, I had been doing that for a week. Um, you know, my school was cool about it. <laughs> yeah, they're like, okay, man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, we had a, a similar kind of dynamic whenever uh, the George Floyd riots happened in Seattle. We had like, I remember I was like the the third or fourth person to the armory, and these kids are coming in. They're just like, "Well, I signed up last week," and they said to be here at the armory. And I was like, "Okay, man, like, <laughs> yeah. here we go." And it became like this contentious issue. They're like, "Hey, look, don't send anybody else to Seattle that at least doesn't have a Kevlar." He's like, "What are we gonna do with them?" You know, <laughs> and we were like, "Well, I don't know." <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty awesome. Oh. Yeah. So, so uh, what? So you get a, a job on the East Coast after uh, you know uh, being in nineteenth group for a year. Uh, and so, what, like, what was that job? What were you doing over there? So I was actually working. Uh, uh, <laughs> I was doing what all SF guys do. I was working for <laughs> yeah. another SF guy that started a company full of SF guys. So right. uh, Bruce, <laughs> Bruce Parkman, who had been a, a sergeant major, he'd been in tenth and seventh group and was a sergeant major. Um, he, uh, started a, a company called NEK and, uh, Bruce is a, a great guy. And, um, uh, like I said, a lot of former SF guys worked over there. So I was doing a lot of 18 Fox related work. It was more, it was stateside. I, I didn't, I didn't do uh, the overseas stuff with it, but, um, we were doing works in support of, uh, you know, at that time it was called Jayato, but the joint ID to feed organization, we were doing some counterinsurgency analysis out of, uh, you know, with the DIA and, and some other units. So a lot of it was support to uh, troops downrange. I also ended up um, supporting a, uh, an analytical platform uh, called Palantir. And uh, we, uh, we kind of initially built their uh, training program for uh, the military and, and special operations. And that, that was a unique experience. I'll tell you what, man, you want, you want to talk about a crazy experience going from the military. So I, 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 um, I ETS out of Fort Lewis, Washington, and I, and I had been back from Iraq, uh, gosh, I guess about like six months or so. And um, so I get this job to go train, to learn this, you know, analytical platform that was kind of like analyst notebook. That's all I really know about it. And they just wanted SF guys to take a look at it and tell them what they thought. So I go to Silicon Valley. So I'm in Palo Alto and I walk into this company and there's dudes going by on like 
skateboards and they're, they're looking at me they're like, yeah, the masseuse shows up on Tuesday and you know, everything's catered. And then they walk me into this room that looks like a Trader Joe's, but everything's free. Right. You just, and they're like, you know, what, what sort of, what sort of, you know, what, what do you like to drink? Jack Daniels. Oh, okay. We'll make sure we, we got it stocked, you know, help yourself. <laughs> and I'm sitting around, I'm looking at these kids, like they're like 23, 24 years. I'm like, what do you all do? Yeah. Oh, we're, we're, we're software engineers. I'm like, well, damn, I should have paid attention in school. What the hell? <laughs> yeah, right. But, um, but it, it was, it was a unique experience because, um, you know, especially when we kind of initially got there, there was, there was kind of this little bit of clash of culture, but it, it was also this mutual respect. We had a great deal of respect for how intelligent these guys were in coding and they really appreciated our ability to kind of, um, translate, you know, what they were doing in their systems and the programs to operators, uh, and analysts. And, and, and it was a, it was a fun job, unique experience. Yeah, that's it's cool that you bring that up because uh, um, our first guest, John Daly, who's a Marsoc guy, uh, one of the first Marsoc guys, and he talks about how he gets out, he retires, he's working at, um, in the their training and doctrine division, and he's like, you know, I want to take uh, like literature classes, and he's just like, I have this GI bill that I'm not doing anything with, so I'm gonna go do that, and so yeah. he talk he tells this story where he's sitting in there with these like 19 year old blue haired girls, and he's this grizzled old like Marsoc <laughs> operator, <laughs> yeah. and uh, he goes, he goes, you talk about culture clash, it was wild, but he did talk about how. Like, uh, uh, it was really interesting because, like, they had a lot of questions for him because they have a certain worldview and they, they look and they're, they're like, well, tell us how, like, you know, you see it. And he's like, well, this is how I see it. And there, he said there was actually a lot of growth on both sides from just simply yeah. having a conversation. Uh, I, so I actually had a, I, I actually had a lot of fun in situations like that because I finished my degree after the service in Northern Virginia Community College and, and, um, <laughs> and some other places out in California and Washington State. And that was, there was some interesting conversations. Um, but yeah, there, there was one time where I learned, I, I, there was one time where I remember like, okay, I am not an SF anymore. And I was sitting down there and we, we were training a combination of, of military intel analysts, law enforcement. And a lot of them were like, they, they were decision makers because they were coming in and seeing whether or not they wanted to use this platform. And I had this young, really smart guy, like, you know, really smart dude, but he's like 22, 23. He's like, Hey, we, we have some techniques we would like you to use for training. And we're like, okay, what do you want us to do? Well, we, we want you to like, you know, if people are not paying attention, you know, maybe have like a, a tennis ball or something like that, that like you throw to the students as you're instructing them and they throw back. And that way, <laughs> you know, they're paying attention. And I looked at him, I said, and, and the first time I hit a Lieutenant Colonel in the forehead, Right. What do you think he's going to think about this? Oh, yeah, we had a, and I looked at this guy and said, look, man, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm here to support you guys. This is, quite frankly, the dumbest idea I've ever heard in my life, <laughs> and I don't think we should do it. So if you want me to do it, could you please put in an email because I don't want anybody to think this idiocy is my responsibility. Right, and, right. and they kind of laughed at the time, and I was just used into a military environment with talking to your peers and your fellow NCOs, and when we would plan missions, you know, that's how we would talk to each other. Like, hey, that's a dumb move and you're going to get us all killed. Could we not do that? Maybe we could do yeah, something right. that wasn't stupid. And nobody took it personal. And I didn't think he took it personal initially. <laughs> I found out later he took it personal. Um, and I learned an important lesson there with respect to how I could talk to my peers within the, the NCO ranks in a special forces environment versus how I could talk to corporate America. I mean, I was still yeah. right in my analysis, but it, apparently I needed <laughs> right. to soften it. Uh, yeah. Well, it sounds like you, you pass on a unique opportunity to being a lieutenant colonel in the head with a tennis ball. That's <laughs> what I took away from that. <laughs> like, do you have anything heavier I can throw? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so, um, so you're, you're doing all this like kind of technical stuff. Like I'm guessing that really kind of sets you up for, uh, your, your Instagram presence, uh, later on. Is that a good analysis? 
I mean, it probably, um, I think what, what started with that is, well, I, I ran for office. Um, mm-hmm. So, so I, I serve in the Virginia House of Delegates. And uh, I mean, obviously, you know, I grew up around, I'm one of those, you know, whatever you call them, Gen X, Zen, I, I don't know what it, I'm like right at the end of Gen X. So I still right. remember a time without social media, but I, I was, you know, young enough yeah, to right. where it came up. I wasn't scared by it. Um, right, right. So I, I had to, I had to interact a lot uh, in that environment, obviously kind of in the, in the political realm. Um, but what, what we really found is during COVID, we, we had to be able to communicate and stay in contact with people. And, um, and so we, we really got better at kind of developing that as, as a platform to be able to work with people, be able to talk to people, inform people on what was going on, um, help with constituent services. And then a lot of it too, the, the, you know, we've kind of emphasized over time was just, um, you know, getting, getting past just talking about things from like a policy perspective or in poli- like a campaign perspective and just kind of like sharing ideas and thoughts and, and communicating with people. And so we've actually done a lot more on, on things like, you know, being, what does it mean to be a father? What does it mean to be a, a husband? What does it mean to be, you know, experiences within the military? Um, all of those things. And, that's that's probably what did the most to kind of set me up and understand this world a little bit more and and try to navigate it effectively. Yeah, like uh, I, the way that I came to uh, to know who you were, um, uh, me and my wife had tried to get pregnant for years. We finally get, get pregnant, and then I find out that she's a girl. And it, for me, like I, I was telling Ken this before we got going, dude, I was like I was scared. I was I was like <laughs> I was like I I came I come from a very masculine household with two boys. Like we hunted and fished all day long. I don't know how my mom survived, if I'm being honest. And so like I don't, I don't know anything about girls. And uh, somebody, and it actually might have been you. Now I think about like sent me a uh, sent me your thing about like you know hey like this is what what I did whenever I first found out I, I was. Uh, having a girl yeah and uh and i was and i was just like i was like oh man that makes a whole lot of sense and it it, it, it like it like really kind of informed me but the best thing it did for me was it really kind of de-escalated the whole like look this isn't that complicated like let's just like <laughs> dial it back and, 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 and try to like try to think through it so so i'll just say thank you for that because it really made a difference for me at the very least and so no it was I, i'll tell you it was funny we were we were doing stuff like the the origin of that video and, and mm-hmm. you know the one you're talking yeah we didn't expect it to go like viral or anything but i think now it's got something like between Instagram and YouTube, I think it's got somewhere in the neighborhood of like 50 to 75 million hits. I believe it. I believe and, it. And uh, one, of, I will tell you one of the most heartbreaking things about that though, is go read the comments. Oh, um, really? Oh my gosh. The, the amount of, the amount of, you know, young women on there basically saying, you know, I, I wish my dad had heard this or I wish I had, you know, had a, yeah. you know, a, a better relationship with my father. Cause it is intimidating. Um, and when you're in the service, like I remember both, all three of my kids were born when I was in the military. Um, and two of them were born, Luke and, uh, Luke was born right before my first tour in Iraq. Allie was born before my second tour in Iraq and Allie, I missed the first of everything, um, other than obviously her birth, but I I missed, you know, first Christmas, birthday, Easter, you know, everything. And, um, and I think it is an intimidating thing for, you know, a man, especially a, a guy that, you know, we consider ourselves, you know, masculine men and there's certain things we do and, uh, gosh, what are we going to do with our, our little girl? And, and yeah, the three questions that are the, the three things I learned was the, the video. I said, you know, I talked to my wife because I figured, Hey, my wife will know something about you know, raising a little girl. And then I said, I hope I can say this on here. I said the, uh, the other, the other person I talked to was the biggest man whore I'd ever met in the military. Right. And, uh, and it was, it was all about asking him, how do I protect my little girl from a guy like you? 
And, right. um, you know, instead of being offended by that, he actually provided me some good insight. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it really was, you know, again, it, it's, I don't think our kids will ever realize until their parents themselves um, how intimidating it can be for, for an otherwise very confident, um, yes. <laughs> yeah, very confident, you know, self-possessed uh, man to all of a sudden be holding this little bundle and be like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm responsible. And, uh, and there's a million things in the world that could, that could hurt him. Um, but I will say that my oldest daughter's 20 now, my youngest daughter's 15, uh, absolute great relationships with both of them. My son's 17. Um, you know, couldn't be more proud of them. And, uh, I, I, and it certainly isn't because I got everything right. Oh my gosh. Um, but that, that whole aspect of, uh, and telling your kids and, and telling your daughters, a daughter needs to hear that her daddy loves her. And, uh, he also needs, he also needs to be able to demonstrate it through his actions. And, um, so it, it was, it was nice because that spurred on a lot of really good conversations and some other content we ended up doing just to be able to, um, you know, talk about experience. That's one of the nice things about this. I, I don't, I don't get on and try to pretend that I'm some sort of, you know, psychiatrist or psychologist or, um, or, or expert in some sort of academic sense, but you know, I've been married 24 years. I got three kids. My oldest is 20. Um, and we, and again, not the most ideal circumstances when you're going off to war and you're going off to yeah. deployments. I think my first 11 years in the military, I spent half of it away from home. And I, I was probably one of the lucky ones compared to a lot of other guys that were even on more rigorous deployment schedules. So, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, as a chaplain, I definitely like can appreciate, uh, the power that that video probably has because I can't tell you how many people have sat in front of me, like, you know, with these like kind of like ramshackle life, you know, situations going on. And then when you start to ask the why question enough times, you get back to like dad left, somebody abused me or something. It's some kind of failure of some man earlier on. And it's just like, dude, like you, you can never understand the power that you have, you know, in somebody's life whenever they're that age and, and you're their, their dad, which is just coming from that perspective. It also added the, the intimidation factor like times 10 to me. Cause I, I can see 20 years down the road. If you like, you screw this up, this could be really bad. Uh, <laughs> right? yeah. So, so, uh, but so yeah, it was like super encouraging to me. And I'm super glad that like, uh, there's somebody with a, the platform and following uh, like you have that's kind of advocating for like, Hey men, like it's time to man up and actually like do your job. You know, that really is uh, super inspiring. So. Well, no, I, I think it's a, I mean, we, we have, you know, you as a chaplain, you understand that we have a, we have a biblical worldview on the way that we look on this, but um, yeah, I, I think more and more there, there's been something of a crisis of um, what society in general, and it, it's sometimes it's difficult using those broad terms, but what society kind of expects out of, out of men now, um, and, and quite frankly, I think there's a lot of things going out there that are, are not very, not very accurate and not very helpful. Um, right. I, I think, I, I think, and not just men, men and women, I think we're, I think we're all searching for purpose and meaning. Yeah. And, and it's, it's amazing. There's a lot of ways that, that, you know, pop culture will tell us to, to go and chase that. And, and one of the things I found is that, um, you know, from, from a faith perspective, uh, you know, from being a husband, being a father, I, I am, I, I'm very, very proud and, and get a great deal of, you know, my professional identity from, from what I did in the military. And, um, and I, I just, I would not trade that experience. I just, I, I, I'm very grateful for it and, and right. what it taught me. Uh, but there is no, there is no greater, uh, mission in my life than, than being, uh, the husband, my wife deserves the father, my children deserve. Right. And, um, and, and I actually feel that, you know, because of, of the service in the military, um, when, when we're supposed to understand 
the necessity of obligation of self-sacrifice, not, not as this thing where it's this, this torturous begrudging thing, right? We, we don't do it simply to in, endure pain. Um, we do it because there's something that we love so deeply that it, when it requires that of us, um, we, we run to the sound of the gunfire. And, and I think when we apply that not only to our, our careers in the military, but when we apply it to our families and understand that it's, uh, it's every bit as important a mission and, um, and it requires our attention and it, retires, it requires our expertise. Um, yeah. And that's, that's an intellectual component. It's a spiritual component. It's an emotional component. Yeah, if you're trying to like lead your house correctly, take care of everybody, be the, the, I find myself more frequently being the person that says like, okay, well, we'll figure it out. Like just, and being that calm presence <laughs> to where it's like, I have no idea how I'm about to figure this out, but like, but like I said, that, <laughs> that, that, that somebody has to like, you know, be, keep the level head and try to figure out what, what's going on. Yeah. Uh, it definitely has a, um, you're right. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a mission. It's, it's a calling and it is definitely uh, super difficult. Um, so like, I guess my question, you, we've talked about your, your, uh, your role as a father. What about your role as a husband? Like what, like, like if, if you were to give us a big takeaway for just like being married for, for over two decades and, and going through, I mean, that's a lot of transition, like kids deployments, you know, moving across the country, uh, even, you know, I would imagine being in the public eye as, as a delegate, it probably is a whole new dynamic. <laughs> that, oh yeah. I, I never, yeah, I never, right. I never uh, realized what a, what a horrible, no good human being I was until I got elected. And then it was like, Oh, just look at Twitter. Well, yeah, we, it's funny. My wife and I, we were just doing a podcast today where we were talking we were talking about questions that you should ask before you get married and, and essentially after you get married as well. And, um, one, one of the things that, that we, we kind of address in that podcast is I said, look, I said, if you stick around to the end, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you exactly how you know she's the one. <laughs> um, and I said, it's actually, it's actually fairly simple. I said, my wife became the one the moment I said I do. Yep. Now, that doesn't mean that I didn't do a lot of you know, <laughs> prayerful consideration, you know, <laughs> ask questions. We spent time together. You know, we, we dated. We were high school sweethearts. We got married at 19 and 20. Oh, wow. Um, and I, I was an E2 in the Army when we got married. Uh, so we knew what it was to be poor. And, um, <laughs> but we, we, we went through all of that. But the thing I try to emphasize in that point is the moment you say I do, dude, you got to burn the ships, man. There's, there's no exit strategy anymore. Um, I wanted my wife to know and she wanted me to know that from that moment on, it was her and I against the world. Right. You know, wh- whatever, whatever else may come, uh, her and I against the world. And that is a, um, I, I cannot emphasize what a liberating concept that is when you know that there's someone that you belong to that belongs to you and no matter what, you're going to go through it together. And, and the thing is, is that, and I, obviously d- divorce in the military is heartbreaking. Divorce within the special operations community is, is really, I mean, just, it's been prevalent. Um, and, and there's been a lot of problems because there's a lot of difficulty. There can be a lot of temptation when you're traveling and you're gone. And, and, um, but that, w- that was one thing where when, when you made that commitment and you made it a point of honor, one, one thing that kind of blew my mind is that I, um, I ran into people in the military that I, w- I would trust to cover my back. Um, but, man, they had some real issues uh, at, at home. And, and I think it's important that as men we understand that the, the same degree of, of loyalty and um, willingness for self self sacrifice that that we that we find and that we 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 elevate 
uh, w- within our military service has to also be seen with within our service as a as a husband and a father. Um, and, and, and again, you don't just do this because that's your lot, right? You know, right. look, pick your wife carefully. You're going to be a while, you know, you're going to be together a while, but, but <laughs> right. man, when, when you do, when you do, and, and she, she has the confidence that you're going to be there and you're going to be that safe Harbor in the storm. It makes every aspect of your marriage so worth fighting for that, that the concept of ever considering, um, you, you know, anything else, um, just just fades away and and so I, I think the other reason I think that's important for people to understand is that so many people have this attitude that well we just grew apart or yeah. we went through difficult circumstances in the military or with com- or man you don't understand like dude no I understand I understand I'm not saying it's easy no one should say it's easy I'm not being flippant about any of this but you make a decision I, I'm tired of people walking around acting like the world just happens to them yeah. Oh, it's beyond our control. You know what? Nothing. It, you're never going to encounter a situation where everything's in control, but you can always control what you do and how you respond to a situation. And that says a lot about who you are as a man yeah. is whether or not people can count on you to fulfill your responsibilities. And, and yeah. if your unit can count on you, your wife and children sure as hell better be able to. Yeah. And and I, I just think that, again, make the decision that you're going to do that and, and you will be amazed. Um, I'm not saying it's always easy, but you, you will just be amazed at the response you get from both your wife and your children. And, and it will just re, you will have those experiences that reinforce time and time again that this is this is the right course of action. And I'm going to and that will help you get through the difficult times. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I just marrying my wife was, um, you know, the best decisions I ever made. Yeah, that I, that, that uh, resonates deeply w- with me. There's been times in uh, in our like mine and, and Kate's marriage where it was uh, it was it was like you know like a if if we had a different worldview, the only thing that would make sense would just be, be to part ways. But I was like I like no, I said before God and everybody that like I'm in this for the long haul, even if for better or for worse, and so I'm going to, to stick it out and just like take it in the, in the teeth, even if it, this just gets progressively worse because I said that I will do it. And so, yeah, like the, I think that like, if we could get that point home to a, a lot of guys and like in our listenerships, like 80% males, we're talking to, to our people that like, look, you know, like the moment that, that you raise your hand, there's no like a walling out, like, you know, like you, you turn around and like, you're going to stick with it no matter what, because that's what you said that you were going to do. Cause it, we had a, a, a Sergeant major that used to make a point all the time. He goes, how can I trust you with an M4? If, if your wife can't trust you whenever you leave the door, you know? And like, it's I was true. like, yeah, it, it, it's absolutely true. It's just like, you know, trust is trust. It's a, so if you start to break it, then it's like, well, you know, it's, it's a really hard well, and, 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 and as guys, and, and culturally, there's been this attitude of, well, we can segregate these things out. Like, of course, I would never let my unit down, but I, I can let my wife and kids down. I'm sorry, man. If you're willing to let this category of your life down, there is always going to be a question of, of how committed you are to the other things within your life. Because when you join the military, yeah, yeah you put your hand up and you swore an oath, not to me. But you, you swore an oath, but you swore an oath to her, yeah, right? Like the, you swore an oath to her, you know, le- yeah, legally, right. most people before God, like the whole deal, like stand by it. And, and this is, this is the other thing. And I, whenever this toxic masculinity stuff comes up, it just, just irritates the crap <laughs> out of me. Um, it, you know, it, it, the things that they're talking about that are toxic is like, yeah, if you're, if you're physically abusing someone, if you're verbally abusing someone, those are toxic traits because they're toxic, not because they're masculine. Yeah. 
Right. Right. Like as, as a man, you know, as a man, you're supposed to be formidable. You're supposed to be a leader. You're supposed to be confident. But all of those things require discipline. It's another thing we hear all these people talking about, oh, are you motivated to this? You motiv-? Look, if you're motivated, great. I, I love it. I love doing things when I'm motivated. But you got to do them either way. Yeah. And, and discipline is what actually creates the consistency necessary in order to accomplish the things you need to accomplish. And again, things don't just like this, this whole idea where people wake up like, how did I get here? Uh, it was, of course, a really stupid and lazy decisions you made. Yeah. And, and that yeah. should be frustrating, but it should also be encouraging because it means you can make different decisions. Yeah. So go make them. And, and I, I, one, of the biggest, one of the biggest ways you can be rebellious in our society right now, be strong, be formidable, be intellectually formidable. Yeah. You know, stand by your wife, stand by your children. Um, you know, my gosh, be faithful to, to God, to the people you're around. Keep your word and, and do it against the tide, man. And, and yeah. you'll be shocked at how many people just look at that in stunned amazement. Yeah, no, I, I, I'll tell you, I don't, cannot tell you how many young men I've had come to me that's just like, oh, my life is all broken. And we start to pick it apart. And it's like, well, that was a dumb decision. Well, that was a dumb decision. Well, that was a dumb decision. And they're just like, they get to this point where they're at the bottom of the horseshoe. And I'm like, okay, yeah. just like you, you're saying, it's like, you made all these dumb decisions. Well, there's good decisions we can make. What's like, and I, would be, I always end it with like, what's one thing that you can do right now to change the, the situation? It doesn't have to be big. It's even better if it's small. Just change mm-hmm. one thing. What's the one thing? And like, that's kind of their homework. And they'll come back and be like, you know, I did that and it really makes sense. And after about two or three of those, those kind of conversations, all of a sudden they're like, I don't need you anymore. They're like, oh yeah, remember when I used to come to your office? You're always left wondering like, what, what happened to them? But like, like you know, they, they tend to do better. Yeah. The whole, the whole make your bed, uh, you know, concept. Yeah. yeah. You know, there, yeah. There's another, there's another thing in this I think is important too. I, I, I heard this, I heard this once from somebody smarter than me somebody more of an expert in the field, but he was talking about differences between male and female. And I, I realize we're talking to a diverse audience, but specifically yeah. he was talking about the way we treat uh, male and uh, depression. Right. And, and he was saying that we, we, a lot of times we treat male depression the way we treat female depression, which is to say that we, we try to provide uh, affirmation and security and um, uplifting and, and things like that, which are all positive. The, the difference is, is that men don't always compute it the same way. And he was saying what men need is a mission. Yeah. We need a purpose. You give a man a purpose he believes in, and he'll crawl through broken glass with a smile on his face. Yep. And I, I think one of the most powerful things you can tell a man is it's like, dude, no one's coming to save your family except for you. But they, they need you. You're going to be a critical element of whether or not you're saving your marriage, you're saving your family, and, and choosing to do it and, and displaying the discipline to do it is, is a critical component of what makes you a man. A lot of the other things that pop culture tells you makes you a man is absolute garbage. But you show me a man that stands by his wife, stands by his children, and I'll not only show you a strong marriage and a strong family, I'll show you strong children that will go on to perpetuate that same disciplined behavior within their lives. And that's how you end up with a strong community, and ultimately it's how you end up with a strong country and a strong military. Yeah, absolutely. So um, kind of transitioning, so like uh, what made you decide to, to, to leave like the military realm and then get into uh, being a politician? <laughs> uh oh, we're gonna get in trouble now. Um, I remember That's I had right. a, a sergeant major. I had a sergeant major, Jer- Jerry Wynn. Love the guy, great sergeant major. He he came to me, and, and the reason why is because I I had gotten a Sephardic slot, and I I had got to go to Sephardic, which was um, 
you know, a, a CQB school, hostage rescue school within SF. And, and typically, if you went to Sephardic, you had the opportunity to, cern, to serve in what we used to call, I think they, I don't know if they call it the same thing now, the SIF force, which was the commanders and extremist force. So it was, it was a, I mean, it was great duty within, within SF. Um, it meant that I was probably going to get even more time on a team, which I was excited about. That's, that's what we want. We want to spend as much time on an ODA as possible. Right. And here I was at 11 years, E7, um, you know, and I wanted to be a team sergeant. And I was getting out. And um, I remember him coming up to me once, and he, and he goes, uh, Freitas, why are you getting out? I said, well, Sergeant Major, look, last combat tour, we did it over in Iraq. I had to fill out a 42-page PowerPoint con op before we could get outside the wire. I mean, we're, we're Green Berets. We go through a year and a half of additional training. It's intensive. We're all, you know, junior and senior NCOs. We don't, the thing that gives us, I said, we don't have more firepower than everybody else. We, we don't have, you know, yeah, we have some great assets, but we, we don't have the firepower of an infantry company or a battalion. And yet right. we're covering down the same battle space. What gives us an edge is that you trust us to go out and do our jobs and do it effectively and to, to react to the environments that we find ourselves in, in order to be effective. And I got to sit there and beg for permission to do my job. I said, Sergeant Major, you, you can... I, I will continue to sit here and volunteer. I said, I've gone to Iraq twice. I volunteered to go to Afghanistan. Um, you can ask me to go over there and my family will understand. My family will understand, but you got to let me do my job. And he goes, that's a BS answer, Nick. He goes, if you see problems, you stay in the military long enough and you fix them. And I said, <laughs> I, said I said, Jerry, you're a Sergeant major. How many of the problems you've been able to fix? Yeah. And he had some choice words for me. Um, but he understood it. He, he, he got it. I said, Sergeant Major, the biggest problem that we're facing right now is not. I said, yeah, we got problems within the military. We got problems with, with how we do stuff. We got problems with, with you know, all kinds of things that, that we can admit. But a lot of our problems are political. Yeah. A lot of our problems are policy, and they're beyond our control because ultimately, as, as is appropriate, we fall under civilian leadership. But I think a lot of that civilian leadership needs to have people that actually understand the practical effects of what they're doing to us in the field. Right. And, um, and again, he, he didn't like it. And, the, and there's, uh, I would have loved to have been a team sergeant and, <laughs> but, right. um, but I, I don't, I don't regret the decision, but that, that's what led to me getting out. And I didn't originally think I'd run for office. I thought I'd just get involved in policy. Right. Um, I just wanted to be someone that had, had, um, you know, had some useful experience and, and, I, I got my degree in intelligence management, and the whole idea was is that I'm, I'm going to work myself in a way to where I can, I can help influence policy in a way that I think will help the guys that are still in. And um, I don't know, I, I guess it was about seven years being out, um, and I, I had a friend of mine, I, actually five years being out, I got asked if I would run for the state house, and I said no, uh, because who wants that drama? <laughs> right. <laughs> and then... Uh, Two years later, I got asked again, and so I did, and, um, and I've been serving in the House of Delegates for the last eight years. Um, made some other runs at some stuff as, as well, but I, I still think it was the right decision. But, um, you know, more and more I, I'm convinced that so many of the problems that, that we face within our society are, are not even political. Um, the, the political is downstream from the culture. Right. And uh, I, I fully believe in a, in a, in a culture which um, cherishes – honor. And, and that's a word we don't use much anymore. Right. Um, but honor is someone that, that stands by what they say they're going to do and, and carries it out regardless of what the potential cost to their you know, physical safety may be. 
Right, and right. I, and I, I don't think you can build a successful society without men that are dedicated, men and women that are dedicated to that and, right. and are willing to actually live it out when it gets difficult. And so while the political is important, the other stuff is important, um, I, I do think it begins with making an individual choice to, to, to stick to that. So how do we go about fixing that? Because we, we have all these cultural maladies. Um, there's very much talk about like intellectual prowess. We can get into like the intellectual history of how we got here. Um, and it's a lot of times you look at it and it just seems like it's like too big to fix. It's just like, we have all these problems. What is like, what's, what's the course of action? How do we, how do we go about like fixing it? So that way um, we have a, a functioning society that, that is vibrant and, uh, and effective. God. I mean, it's, I know it sounds flippant. It isn't. Right. Um, and, and whether you're approaching that from a, a social, uh, a social perspective, a theistic perspective, a political perspective, a, um, epistemological perspective, like how do you know what you know about society? Yeah. Um, you know, I, am I'm, I'm a Christian in, in large part. And, and the bottom line is when I first, I, I was raised that way, but when I was the first five, six years in the military, you, you probably wouldn't have been able to tell except for me just saying, yeah, that's what I believe. Um, and one of the things that I recognized was that the, I grew up in this faith that was kind of very um, emotional, really yeah. kind of social. Yeah. There was no intellectual component to it. And so I, I appreciated it, um, but it didn't really strike home until I started having to argue for it and, and truly debate and understand it. And the reason why I think that's so important is because what, what it led me to discover um, was that when, when we look at the, at the framework we have for just about everything that we believe in society, whether it be objective reality, whether it be concepts of objective truth, objective morality, the idea that there is right and wrong, there is good and evil in this world, um, that doesn't explain itself through natural processes. It just doesn't. There, there is no framework for that. If, if you really want to be consistent in this idea that we live in a materialistic world, well, then you don't get, when somebody does something truly egregious and horrible, you don't get to say it's wrong. You don't get to say it's evil. You just get to say you don't prefer it. Anyone honestly believe that's the world we occupy? When you see something horrible happen, you're just like, well, I just don't prefer that. No, we, we feel that inherent sense of injustice. From whence does that come? Right. And in order to have that, there has to be objective truth. There has to be an objective moral law. And I believe that means there has to be an objective moral law giver. And, yeah. and so that, that stems from this idea of understanding. And again, if you, if you have a commitment to the truth, if you have a commitment to the idea that there is right and wrong, regardless of how you may feel about it, if you have a commitment to the idea that there is such a thing as reality and you don't get to simply bend reality to your will however you want, you operate within it because if you don't, there are horrible consequences as a result. If you understand that individual liberty also means personal responsibility, um, if, if you can grasp those things and if those things make sense to you, and you operate within that framework, all of a sudden, the world around you and what you need to do in order to make it work for you, for your family, for your community, for your country, um, starts to make sense. It starts to be, it's, there, there's a clarity that is added there. And then perhaps one of the most important things that also provides the sense of meaning and purpose. And again, when, when people have purpose, um, it is amazing both what they can accomplish and what they can endure and how they can get through difficult times. And, and one of the biggest mistakes that I think we've made is, if we, is we've told per people that there is no ultimate purpose to the universe. So this is all about preferences. This is all about how something makes you feel in the moment. This, this is all about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and what your version of self-actualization is. 
without without any you know without any real consideration for for reality or truth, um, and it doesn't work. It, it when when you there was this theory, and, and there's this great book called uh, Life at the Bottom, written by a guy named uh, his, his real name is Doctor Anthony Daniels, I believe, but Theodore Dalrymple is his pen name. And he spent 20 years working in the British National Health Service in prisons and within some of the, the poorest of the communities. And when he, one of the things he talked about there was this mindset that the government was going to create this environment where they ensured that every single human being had the basic necessities of life, that they were clothed, that they were housed, that they were fed, that they had some basic element of entertainment, that they had access to medical care. And what he concluded after decades working within that field is that what we had actually done is we had robbed people of the personal responsibility associated with understanding that you have an obligation to provide those things for you so that you can also be in a position to help other people when they need it. The charitable component was very, very important. But in the sense of, in the sense of alleviating people from the responsibilities of life, we also took away their purpose. And when we did that, it, it led people down some of the most self-destructive behavior they had ever seen where once again they were living in a world where they didn't have any influence or impact on their lives. It was just things happening to them. And it was just chasing these, these ultimately kind of you know, meaningless physical gratification or, or drama or whatever it was that would punctuate the dreariness within their lives. And so I, I, I think it's just so critical to approach the world with, with a, the appropriate worldview um, so that you can realize that, you know, fighting for those things that you, you care about and, um, and coming alongside and assisting others that are in a different, you know, portion of their journey. Um, that, that is, that's not the hard stuff in life that you're trying to eradicate. It's the things that give it meaning and purpose and the things that you'll look back on one day and say, you know, gosh, in, the, in that moment, that was formative. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. There, I've seen, uh, as, so as a chaplain now, I've been in for 17 years. I've worked nine different suicides. And the, the one thing that is the common thread is that like a complete lack of like sense of purpose or meaning. And then they, they all end up making a decision in their own unique way where it's like they look at the, the world and they say, the only thing that, that's left is, is pain. What's the, what, why are we doing this? And uh, the ones that, that you're able to kind of like help kind of like right the ship and get them back on, it's like, you know, this, you, you get them to see that like, this isn't just like some boulder that's about to crush you. It's a stepping stone to something greater. If you just change the, the, your mindset about that and then, and use it and, and really kind of embrace the whole, the obstacle is, is the way sort of mentality. Um, you're, you're destined for great things, uh, that like nobody, you know, like nobody knows what, what you could go and, and be, but, uh, that, that becomes the challenge is trying to shift that worldview so that way they see those challenges as, as points of growth rather than, uh, like, you know, the end of the road or just yeah. meaninglessness. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Couldn't agree yeah. more. Yeah, so you said that, uh, like, uh, you, you didn't really kind of start, start to grow in your faith until you had to defend it. Um, what, like, what, what was the genesis of that? Like what, what, who, who, uh, who attacked you? <laughs> <laughs> two, two things, two things. Uh, one was my neighbor. Um, my neighbor, no, 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 no. This, <laughs> he wasn't the one that attacked me. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and Anthony and Janelle, uh, they, they, they still live, uh, they still live up there and just wonderful people. And, um, they would always invite us to, to go back to church and whatnot. And, um, and, and again, I wasn't completely ignorant of my faith. 
but they they would always they would always invite us and, and Anthony was great about it. Anthony was uh, he had been in, in Ranger Battalion uh, he was in the reserves great guy just great dude uh, and he was all like hey I'm going to church if you'd like to go we'd love to have you that's it otherwise yep. see you later right it wasn't it wasn't this like hard what? sell or soft sell it was just I'm going if right. you want to go cool right? Yeah, right and and I respected Anthony as a man. You know, and and so that was one. And then my, I remember one day Tina and I were talking about it. And my daughter who was three at the time, I think it was, I think she was three. She said, what's church? And I was like, I have failed in my (laughs) spiritual responsibilities. (laughs) So that was one. Uh, Another, another uh, key component was I was going through the 18 Fox course after my first combat tour in Iraq. And there was, uh, there was a guy there and we started to get in these, you know, some of these debates. and, and, And there was a guy there who was unapologetic in his faith. Uh, but he was also well-versed, well-versed, intellectually strong. And again, I respected him as a man. And I remember we got to talking because it ended up being him and me against you know, some, some other guys in, right. in the classroom quite a bit. And, uh, and he said, have you, ever, have you ever studied Christian apologetics? And I was like, what's that? And so he started to give me some some names to go over, and you know, you know, I, I just kind of went down that rabbit hole of you know Greg Bonson and William Lane Craig, and, and I mean, yeah. the list goes on of, of just sitting there, and, and it was something that was missing because you see this in the scripture too, when God commands you to love Him with all your your heart, your soul, your spirit, your strength, your mind, right? The yeah. mind would it has had has always been missing for me, and let's yeah. face it, you don't have you don't have a real relationship with someone unless there's also an intellectual component to it. Yeah. Right. If, if you just love like I love my dog, I don't got an intellectual relationship with my dog. Right. right. You know, but I, I love my wife in that complete, you know, emotional, intellectual, um, you know, you know, relationship, all the things that are involved there. And, and that's what was just amazing to me was the relationship that was opened up by by finally diving into the intellectual as well and, and finding out, you know, it, it is not good enough for me to just believe this because it makes me feel better. Right. If, if you're believing it because it makes you feel better, it might as well be a fad diet or some stupid, you know, faddish right. self-help book that, you know, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. But if it's actually a relationship based off of something that is true, well, that's different. That's different. That actually provides that actually provides something concrete from which to build from. Right. Um, yeah. And so that, that's what happened. And, and him and I, um, you know, again, it, it, it was an important component. And, and just like anybody else when they first started apologetics, and, and I'm, I'm, fairly, I'm fairly good at debate, right? Um, I got real arrogant up front. And I remember having an episode at, you know, debating with this one guy. And uh, I'll show this real quick. Because we, we were debating the existence of God, and we were going through, and, and I had provided a, a, what I thought was a very good argument. And um, he looks at me and he goes, uh, would you believe you go to hell if you commit suicide? And I said, well, that has no bearing on whether or not God exists. You could or you could not, but it has no bearing on whether or not God exists. In fact, what you're making right now is either a version of a straw man argument or you're attempting to make a red herring argument where you're distracting from the main point. So why don't you keep it on, on the topic? And I remember thinking to myself, man, I just crushed him. That was an intellectually unassailable <laughs> argument. You whipped up the logical fallacies. (laughs) Yeah, and and what I should have asked was, why did he ask me that? Yeah. And he asked me that because his wife had committed suicide. Wow. And one of the most important things it taught me in that moment is that if (laughs) if I am arguing or debating or discussing or sharing any of this with the intent to show someone how smart I am or ostensibly how stupid they are, I have totally missed the point 
and have potentially done more damage than I could have ever done had I just shut up. Yep. And it was it was a very that was a very formative time for me in in recognizing that um, look if you believe this and you believe it's true and you believe that it's rooted in both truth as well as justice as well as love then you better speak the truth in love, right. and and recognize that this is about something bigger than you you demonstrating your your intellectual prowess to somebody. Yeah. Um, but it was it, that that's what that's what really got me. Um, really back into understanding that and then just really embracing my responsibilities. Not to say that I always get that right, man. Oh my gosh. But, um, wow. but I, I recognize the responsibility is there. And so when, and I recognize when I'm veering away and. Yeah, yeah that, that humility is a, a key component. Uh, and I think we all learn it in our, our own ways. Uh, you you got to speak my love language, your, uh, your uh, use of logical fallacies, because there's a funny story behind it. So uh, I got married as I'm going through seminary and uh, in seminary, you're constantly arguing some like, you know, theological nuance. And so I had printed out like a cheat sheet of all these like, you know, logical fallacies and had it laminated right beside my desktop. My yeah. wife would come in, would be like, well, here's this thing. And I'd be like, well, that doesn't make sense because you see here and like, and, and, and like, it got to be this thing where, where she was like, if you pull out that logical fallacy sheet one more time, I'm going to kill you. Like divorce was never on the table. Murder always was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And, and uh, but yeah, it was the same lesson to where I've started to realize that like she didn't necessarily want uh, she didn't she wasn't there for a debate she was there to be heard and uh, and so I had to let, you know that was the, probably the first person I think I ever did real ministry to albeit terrible uh, you know, uh, <laughs> just by by learning how to listen so it's cool yeah. that you have a, a similar experience like that oh yeah, um, yeah. so yeah you, you talk a lot about uh, becoming like intellectually mature. Um, we have a, uh, a, a one of the things I love about this organization is that there is a vibrant culture uh, of reading. Um, we're actually uh, like we're working on our first like YouTube live show where we basically get to get, to, get together and have book club. Where it's like, well, what are you reading? Well, that's dumb. Like, let me tell you what I'm reading. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and we guys book club. That's dumb. Yeah, right. <laughs> There's so, no pictures. Uh, so, yeah. So my question is like, what what are you reading? What's what's uh, what's on your uh, your nightstand that that you can't put down? Oh gosh. Um, Thomas soul is like a never ending stream of excellent reading material. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's a, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I love his book, basic economics, which probably sounds like, Oh yeah, that sounds like a real page turner, Nick. Um, <laughs> right. he, he, had, he had another one called a uh, vision of the anointed, which I thought was, was really impactful. Um, wealth, poverty, and politics. Again, these sound like they're just really heavy-duty academic, but they're not. He, he has a way of explaining these really complex political, social, economic principles in a way that I just find is really interesting. And if you, and if you don't got time to read, go watch his interviews. He's in his 90s now, and he's, he's kind of a smart aleck. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah. But, but he's, he's fascinating to read. Um, Frederick Bastiat's The Law. Is, is I think it's like 75 pages, I think right around there. Um, but it, it's, it's, I think one of the best books that have, has ever been written on just kind of political philosophy. Um, and I don't mean that in a partisan perspective. I mean, really appreciating what, what is the appropriate role of government and its pursuit to seek justice and how does they get, that is, does that get perverted um, right. at times and how do we prevent that from taking place in order to maintain a legitimately free society so Bastiat's the laws is a is a great one um I'm trying to think of some of the other ones i've been i've been reading lately um live not by lies um 
is one I'm looking at right now. And, and it's kind of this idea of how do you engage with culture that you feel is kind of increasingly become hostile to uh, some of the values that, that, you know, I believe and, and how do you speak the truth in love, but how do you also, um, how do you also maintain the strength to stand by what the truth is regardless of the consequences? Right. Um, so th- those are all, those are all some of the books that, um, you know, I'm, I'm reading. I, I also, <laughs> I, I'm really, uh, I've really gotten into like homesteading culture. Okay. <laughs> so um, some of the other stuff I read in, in my YouTube, my YouTube is the most eclectic, weird, like from Kings and Generals, Military History Channel to Roots and Refuge, watching, you know, Jess on there. Like, this is how I'm doing my seed starts. Right? <laughs> uh, so it, it's, a, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty eclectic uh, YouTube channel and, and reading list. But yeah, those are, those are some of the things that, that's another thing too, I, I think that is, I know this has been kind of important for me, um, you know, a, a lot of the work that I do is kind of intellectual because we're constantly talking about policy and policy decisions, and I got to carry bills and vote on them and everything else. Um, and then we do a lot with our, our podcast on making the argument, where a lot of what we're talking about is social, cultural, theological, political. Um, one of the reasons why I kind of got into the homesteading too, and now I've got all kinds of chickens and goats and you know peacocks and quail right. and pigs, and um, there there is there is something too that I also think is kind of therapeutic. Um, and I think this is this is good for um, veterans as well and, and active duty military. There's something about um, getting into something and, and learning how to, um, you know, raise animals, uh, grow food. There, there's something about that that I, I just find it, it's physically demanding, which is the reason why when I get home from a lot of this, I love to have enough time at the end of the day to go out in the garden, go with the animals, uh, you know, plant stuff, you know, um, something that's that's gives me a little bit of quiet um, time to, you know, think, gather my thoughts, pray, uh, and, and work, do, do some heavy lifting um, so that when I come in, you know, for the end of the day, you know, sit down with dinner, talk with my wife and kids, um, and, and, you know, get a good night's sleep because you've got that both that intellectual and that physical kind of exhaustion at that point. <laughs> right. uh, it's really good. So I didn't mean to go off on a tangent there, but, yeah, no, yeah. anything no. anything about telling the soul, uh, you know, Basti at the Law, if you're looking for something old there, I, I, I love um, – William Lane Craig's got some great stuff, as does Greg Bonson. And then, um, yeah, and then, uh, I, I yeah, homesteading stuff. <laughs> the homesteading stuff, yeah. yeah. It, no, I think uh, you hit on a really good point with uh, one of the, the kind of the National Guards, I guess the, the Army, their their new, like, initiatives is the, the H2F, like the holistic fitness uh, kind of aspect of, like, how do we take care of the, the intellectual, how do we take care of the spiritual, as well as taking care of the, uh, of the physical. And uh, they really have a... Um, a tripartite, tripartite anthropological view of, of people, and which is, is super cool to see. And, and it's not like it, it's necessarily anything new. Marcus Aurelius wrote about it and, and things like that. Yeah. But I'm just glad that, that we, we kind of came around to finally being like, okay, yeah, that's how it works. Um, and uh, you see, like, monastic orders that, like, dictate that like, you must work. like And then you have people like... Uh, I think it was Epictetus who wrote that like all I need is a library and a garden and, and I have enough. So it's cool to, to see you uh, it, it, the, not only just uh, experimenting with it and, and say like I'm doing this, but also showing people that, hey, look, this is a thing that, that you should have some sort of physical outlet to help kind of work things out. And in, in an a information-driven culture, it's it becomes like less and less uh, – y- you can outsource any, any physical inconvenience as possible. So getting yeah. kind of back to that is, is, uh, is pretty awesome. So yeah. uh, h- how did you go about like sourcing your, your, uh, your books that you, that you read? Well, part, part of it was just kind of general interest. So I, I've, I've always been, um, 
I've always been interested in, in kind of the, the political, the philosophical, the historical. I mean, since I was little, I remember watching the Ken Burns documentary, The Civil War. Oh, wow. When, when I was like 12. And, and man, I just, I was hooked. Like for three years, that was my whole personality was like, sounds really nerdy. <laughs> the civil war but, guy. <laughs> oh my gosh. It, well, it was just fascinating to me. And, and, uh, um, like the whole idea of the conflict and the strategy involved and the idea of, of, you know, people that knew each other and, and had shared, you know, shared beliefs in many respects and not in others. And, um, and, and also it, 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 another thing that's really interesting about that war is that, um, tactics had not caught up with technology. Yes. And, yeah. and what that and what was amazing is that that led to a lot of, I mean, incredible bravery that you could argue was not um, was also a result of, of poor leadership. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how many times Burnside has to run people across a bridge against 600 Georgians to figure out that, oh, maybe we should ford over here. Like, great idea. political. <laughs> <You're opinion. right. laughs> but anyway, um, um, no, you know, so, that's a good. Uh, point we read um, John English's uh, on infantry and that's oh, the, yeah. the whole book is just basically like look dude like things change and you need to change with it or else like you're gonna end up with like a, a really high body count and nothing to show for it yeah there was another fascinating book called uh, uh and, it, and it's interesting because he ended up getting a lot more political later on but early on when I first heard of him he wasn't really political at all and that was Victor Davis Hanson Okay. Um, now he's, he's very much associated with politics, but when my first introduction to him was reading carnage and culture and it was fascinating cause he, he was right. It was kind of a response to Jared diamonds, guns, germs, and steel. And it, and it was this idea that, um, you know, cause Jared diamond was geography is kind of destiny and Victor Davis Hanson's took a very, very different approach. He said, no culture is destiny. Yeah. And, and then he, he listed off and, and what was fascinating is what he was saying is that some of the elements within Western culture that have made it so deadly militarily have been um, concepts of the citizen soldier and, and the and, and the heavy infantry, and um, in addition to that, it was the idea of fighting for one's own polity. So you you weren't a, you weren't just a uh, a conscript. You weren't just you know um, you weren't just your your military service wasn't tribute from a distant province because the the centralized leader of a multi ethnic empire had demanded that okay I need Balearic slingers now right like yeah, that right like you you actually you actually felt invested in what you were fighting for and then the other component of that was freedom of inquiry was the idea that that things could be challenged in in that and that's not to say that that was purely a, a Western concept all of these things appeared in in various cultures throughout but there there had seemed to be a, a um, a concentration in the in certain major powers that had really adopted these concepts, being like Macedonian Greece and and Rome, and it was interesting because one of the one of the battles he used to prove his point was actually Cannae, which mm -hmm. is you know that was where Hannibal just decimated like yeah. a generation of of Roman uh, military, and he was talking about how you know the, the culture within Rome allowed it to continue to fight and then raise up an army that would eventually you know uh, beat Carthage, and so yeah that so. My interest kind of did a lot of that within the military history component. And then, you know, my mom had been involved in politics. And so reading in, in political philosophy, Milton Friedman, Bastiat, Thomas Sowell were all incredibly in, influential for me. And then because I was a history buff, I liked to read a lot of the founders. And I liked, I liked reading um, elements of the, the constitutional debates that were going on. Like, why did we do things a certain way? Um, there is something truly unique about the United States and, and our particular system. Uh, we talk about democracy. Like, oh my gosh, 
We are a constitutional republic that uses democratic processes in order to elect people and for those elected politicians to decide upon various laws. But this idea that we're just a democracy or that that somehow you know, encompasses what we are is, is absurd. Yeah. Um, democratic processes are essential uh, to our nation, but they are not sufficient to a free society. Right. Um, and, and understanding that was amazing. And I, I, I now have the privilege of representing James Madison's district in the house of delegates. Oh, really? Well, yeah. So, cool. um, so that, that's, that, that kind of directed a lot of it. Then obviously some of the, the theological stuff as well. But, um, I think more and more now, I think a lot, of, I don't know if it's everybody. I find it hard. This has been the Raven Report podcast, the official podcast of the 81st Striker Brigade Combat Team. If you're interested in seeing if you have what it takes to join our team, go to our Instagram, click the link in the bio, click the join link and connect with us. Questions that I was wondering about. And now on my podcast, I get to do the interviewing at times and that's a lot of fun. So that, that's, that's how I've, I think it's sourced out of interest and then some of it out of professional necessity. Uh, if you want a great book on unconventional warfare, I think War in the Shadows is probably the best one that's ever been written. But, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, I, I'm writing it down right now. It, it's uh, a <laughs> uh, – uh, if uh, – I'll, I'll, I'll uh, completely affirm your point that, like, podcasts and YouTube and stuff, it becomes, like, these, these really important, um, like, training tools. I mean, I've used YouTube and, and podcasts to just teach myself – uh, for years, but I will tell you, um, I even I have a, a weekly newsletter I put out, and I made the point the, the other day uh, in the the, the like, intellectual section of it that like I've learned more from hosting a podcast than I think that I, I at about a diverse array of topics than anything else, just because like you get these subject matter experts that come in and then just like just dump all this stuff on you, and you're just like oh man, like a sponge, uh, yeah. like it really is something uh, something to, to to embrace for sure, and so. But yeah, I, we're rolled up on an hour. I don't want to keep you too long. I know you've got a lot of uh, delegating and reading to go uh, go go do. But I just uh, I wanted to thank you for coming on, man. That's super awesome. It's uh, been a lot of fun, and it's also wild that you were in the Washington National Guard, albeit uh, you know for just a year and kind of yeah. sort of yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By name. Yeah. Well, no, thank thank you very again. Thank you very much for what you guys are doing. I, I always really appreciate um, the guy still in uniform. The guy still serving. Uh, please know that. Um, you know, again, from, you know, <laughs> from someone that is increasingly becoming a crusty old veteran who my got my <laughs> friends that are still in where they're like, oh, I just made Sergeant Major. I'm like, no, Sergeant Majors are old. We're not Sergeant Major. Yeah, right, <laughs> and, right. uh, but, you know, just just know that uh, it, it is it is genuinely appreciated. And I know it's probably not always felt, but um, there, there is a there is a whole um, there's a whole generation of of people that came before the guys that are currently in. And uh, we're 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 proud of you. And you're you're carrying on a tradition that goes back a lot farther than any of us. And uh, one thing I would just remind everybody is always conduct yourself in such a way to where when you stand before the people that came before you, you won't be embarrassed to be in their presence. Yeah, that's an excellent way to, uh, to end it. Thanks so much, man. Thank you. This has been the Raven Report Podcast, the official podcast of the 81st Striker Brigade Combat Team. If you're interested in seeing if you have what it takes to join our team, go to our Instagram, click the link in the bio, click the join link, and connect with us.